Meredith Monday. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned. Chris, what's going on? Not too much. Um, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. Sunday, Sunday afternoon vibes for me, you know, <laughs> super chilled. Uh, we we uh, set apart some new deacons today at church. That was awesome. Oh, cool. Preached on the diaconate. That was pretty cool as well. Um, so we're just, as I said last time, you know, having this little celebration on ecclesiology. <laughs> so it's, it's some good <laughs> stuff. And uh, preaching on pastoral ministry to the congregation next next um, week. So very cool. Uh, yeah, it's pretty pretty cool. A little bit different to the usual, but I just want everyone to be clued up on the church, you know. And um, so mm-hmm. I, I think it's cool. And then after that, I'm on the plane, and uh, I'm going to have my infamous um, conversation with John Frame. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'll let you know how that goes. Yes. I'll, yeah. I'll tell him. I'll tell him you say hi. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> Would that give me in trouble? Yeah, wear something bulletproof. <laughs> yeah. <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'll take that advice. I'll take that advice. Yeah. So it'll be the last thing I say before I run out of the room. <laughs> um, but no, cool. Um, no, looking forward to that. Getting out to, to hang out with the X twenty nine guys at, um, you know, in the states, and then um, actually, well, we'll be in Orlando for that one, and then um, and then heading over to Joe Thorne's church. You know, Joe Thorne. Yes. Yeah, so that's going to be cool. I haven't actually been to one of their church services yet, so I'm looking forward to that. I haven't smoked a cigar in their little cigar lounge where all the snapshots are taken, <laughs> so that kind of thing. So it's going to be pretty cool. Uh, looking forward to seeing Joe again. Um, but yeah, I mean, otherwise, let's let's press on with this, um, this book of yours, Chris. Okay, all right. so I think we're on chapter six, right? Chapter six, the Mosaic Covenant. This is where it gets cray-cray. This is the interesting part. <laughs> this is the old covenant of law somehow wangled into the covenant of grace according to some crazy republication deal, and we're going to try and flatten all that out for you. Um, all right, so um, you just coming at it from the last chapter. I mean, you, you take us on a little ride through redemptive history. Uh, you said, well... You know, we get to the end of the book of Genesis and it feels like we're left hanging, going into Exodus. Um, and then basically just give us an account of the way in which God was there with these people um, and how, you know, really there was another type of baptism in their deliverance, moving through uh, the waters, the Red Sea. Um, uh, that's that, that whole redemptive judgment thing from Klein, right? Yes. Yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit more about what he means by redemptive judgment? I, I don't know if you mentioned it too much in the book itself, but um, um, I know obviously Klein does. Um, do you want to talk about that at all? Sure. Um, I probably don't talk about it very much in this book, but um, so Klein sees um, each judgment event, whether it's um, the the ultimate final judgment at the end of history or um, an earlier judgment event that is pointing forward uh, to that final judgment, but that each one has two aspects to it, uh, redemptive judgment and penal judgment, mm. meaning that for God's people, judgment is never something that we should fear because we have already undergone that judgment in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Right. Um, but for unbelievers who... Um, are not trusting Christ to save them from their sins, 
they will bear that judgment themselves. So it's penal or punishment, you know, for them. Yeah. And that's exactly what we see in the, the Red Sea episode is that both God's people and the Egyptians enter into the Red Sea as mm. it's parted. Um, God's people are allowed to pass through to, safely to the other side, but those waters close up and drown uh, Pharaoh and his army. Mm. Yeah. So really, um, in that sense, a repeat, I think Klein does go into this uh, when uh, we think about the flood and the ark and that sort of thing, right? Uh, exactly. Same idea. And um, so if you did want to read more of that, listening to this, um, Kingdom Prologue deals with that, I think around the flood time, more so than um, the Red Sea thing. If, uh, do, you th- do you think I'm right, right. there? Yeah. Yes. Totally. But same principle, exactly. I love it. I think it's so powerful. And as you say, I mean, it's just it's the source of assurance right there. You know, we're going to die. Uh, we go through it all, but we, we come out safely, <laughs> you know, and our, our confidence rests in this whole thing that uh, it's not that we, you know, have to sort of wish away our sinful kind of uh, life or sinful thoughts or, you know, but we understand they've been punished uh, in every way. But just right. uh, you know, we're safely in in the other that carries us through. It's an amazing idea. Um, it was revolutionary for me yeah. um, when I heard this in Klein's class because I had been raised in a church that told me that I should be terrified almost all day long because Christ might come back and catch me in the middle of a sin. Oh man! And you know, then at the final judgment, all of my sins would be put up on this big screen for everybody to see, and mm. I'd be. You know, judged by God and, uh, you know, my fellow human beings. And so it just the thought of final judgment was terrifying. Yeah. And it wasn't until Klein that I heard um, f- judgment is actually good news for you um, mm. because Christ has borne it for you. And it means the doorway into, um, you know, the ultimate blessing of the new heavens and the new earth. Yeah. Amen. And just the fact that it gets repeated again and again in the scripture. I mean, that's awesome. You know, it's just drilling yes. home on this idea. God wants us to know about this by the time we get to Jesus. So we understand yes. what's going on and what it means for us. Um, so, yeah, I love it. And then the other thing I love you, you say through the Red Sea, um, Moses led Israel out of Egypt and into the wilderness. The Lord led them by a pillar of cloud during the day and a pillar of fire during the night to the base of Mount Sinai. Smoke and clouds hid the mountain as God. And then, and then we go into the Sinai covenant, or at least um, appearance mm-hmm. of God, theophany. But um, just that that uh, pillar um, of cloud and fire, I had never made that connection to uh, the legs of God and the smoking fire part and all of that uh, right. that, that Klein brought out. And uh, man, I, I thought that was so powerful in that, you know, you really see, and this kind of relates to where we're going on this, in that all of a sudden when you get to, mosaic covenant you have something different going on but on the way you know being redeemed from from egypt um it is a continuation of genesis very much in that god is really fulfilling that um that covenant that he made with abraham he's he's bringing them out of the land as a result of that same covenant and even using the same imagery as uh, abraham saw with this you know Mm -hmm. leading his people by that by that um unilateral sort of uh Imagery, you know, God Himself walking through the pieces. Uh, that's right. the reason that they were delivered. I, th- I think that's immensely powerful, you know, just as a foreshadowing of the cross. Yes. Yeah. You, you have, um, you know, obviously the Old Testament having the Passover and 
deliverance from Egypt. I mean, that is essentially kind of like the cross of the Old Testament, you know. And uh, so to see that connected to that commitment of God to walk through the pieces um, just adds to it. Uh, it speaks of the time when, he, you know, that he is, he is um, he's committed to walking through, to, to receiving that curse upon himself and so leading us out of bondage and leading us into glory. I mean, it's just an amazing ongoing thought. Anyway, so bottom line, you, you don't talk about that either, do you? What, what are you doing, Chris? You're not talking about that one? <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. Well, but just supplementing, you know, just, just adding a little client here and there. Yeah, yes. I mean, those are um, very important insights. So I'm glad that you're bringing those up. But I'm trying to take a very complex issue and yeah. make it yeah. simple enough for people to understand. And that's what's cool about this. It moves it forward. We're kind of messing up the flow of your book. If you read it through, it's a, <laughs> you know, because it is, it, I think that is the problem with reading Klein. You know, you just get too stop starty, you know, because you, mm. you're just kind of like, what are we even talking about again? Because you're just trying to wrestle with the little bit of dynamite that nearly blew you up. And then, you know, you're going straight into the next <laughs> uh, patch and, and sometimes you do lose the flow of thought. And so that's, that's what you are doing here. Um, but then uh, you, the idea there is, um, you, uh, t well, you do mention that it, the covenant of Sinai was a continuation in that sense of God's covenant with Abraham because he was, um, well, leading them out and moving them into, um, you know, bringing them into uh, the land, numerous descendants, etc. cetera. Um, but then we get to a kind of new thing. And just before you talk about um, that, that, there's that uh, heading you've got there, the Mosaic covenant as a typological covenant of works. Um, you explain this, um, and I've underlined in my book, even though God gave the land of Canaan to Israel out of his kindness, in spite of their sin, in other words, grace, Israel had to earn the right to remain in Canaan by their own obedience to the law. Um, so what do you mean there? I mean that uh, the reason that they were given the promised land was because God had, had promised it to Abraham. Yeah. Um, so we're to see that entry into the land as part of the Abrahamic covenant directly, right? Yes. This is what Klein calls the first level fulfillment. Right. Uh, the ultimate fulfillment of this is when we get to enter into the new heavens and the new earth. That's right. ultimately what God was promising Abraham. Mm -hmm. um, but... Um, Wow, I just lost my train of thought. Um, well, <laughs> uh, well, hey, it happens to the best of us, and uh, <laughs> it happens to me all the time. <laughs> but, uh, uh, while you process that, uh, or just let me let me throw another spanner in the work. If you think about Galatians, right? Mm -hmm. um, and and I'll circle back, and we can carry on with this um, with this train of thinking, because really, what you're saying here is at this point, you have this this adding of a typology to the existing covenant of grace, which is, you know, where it gets interesting. But, but just in the way that this is phrased, I, I, my mind shoots to um, Galatians, which I know, ironically, this theology ends up sorting out. Like, you know, you can make sense of Galatians uh, well because of what you're about to say in this book. So just again, oh. bookmark that. But you, I just coming at it from the other angle, and just I wanted to see what you would say about this. Think about what Paul says, um, uh, when, when he's talking about, hey, listen, you're so, you know, hey, foolish Galatians, uh, are you so foolish that you have been 
you know, you begin in the spirit, but are perfected by works of the flesh. You know, almost paraphrasing that, are you so foolish in thinking that you've been brought into the land by grace and now you have to keep it by your own works? You know what I mean? What is the difference between what we're saying and what Paul's, like, I know that that's not the right way to read Galatians, but what's going wrong with that comparison? Well, that he's addressing people in the new covenant, which is gracious through and through. There is no typological covenant of works. Right involved in the people that paul is writing to yeah um i maybe didn't do a good enough job of emphasizing how the abrahamic covenant of grace runs through this i mean i i pointed out and i even have an illustration that kind of diagrams it yeah you do yeah i i think that we really see god's grace in the mosaic covenant in the um sacrificial system the the Mm -hmm. priestly office um, because when an Israelite did sin, they could go to a priest, offer a sacrifice, mm. and um, insofar as they understood that there was a greater sacrifice to come, mm. even though they didn't know that his name was Jesus, mm-hmm. um, you know, their sins were forgiven based on their our, their faith in that, um, that greater sacrifice. Mm. Um, so, there is grace there. Mm-hmm. I, I don't mm-hmm. want to deny that, but... Sure. Um, in order to show Israel their sin, Mm. God made a covenant with them at Mount Sinai that was based on, on the principle of justice. Um, it was a law and, um, we're back to the same kind of thing that we discussed Mm. with the covenant of works with Adam, where Israel's obedience would cause blessing and their mm-hmm. disobedience would cause curse. Yeah, totally. And I think as we go on in the book, you give very lucid evidence. I think undeniable evidence that you have to see this as being some sort of some sort of republished covenant of works in some way. And you've got to reckon with that. Just especially if people don't appreciate, you know, if this is the first time they're hearing about covenant theology or building it from the ground up, so to speak, uh, they might not be aware of of maybe, what do we call it, the more classic Reformed, um, would you say more Westminster Reformed? I know Klein, actually, I've been wanting to ask you this forever. Um, does, did Klein see the Westminster as being off mark on this issue of republication? He had a way of reading it that um, that certainly allowed for, you know, the way he understood the Mosaic Covenant. Right. And, I, you know, I'm looking now at my footnote 51. Yeah, I think I got it from your footnote, that question somewhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> It says, this has been the classical reformed position on the Mosaic Covenant. Well, um, since then, I've done more work on <laughs> right, the classical reformed position. And I would have to say I'm probably wrong there that the classical, at least the majority report, is probably that the Mosaic Covenant is uh, a covenant of grace through and through. Right. Well, you were certainly taking a Mark Kahlberg um, <laughs> approach there, right? You know, just uh, emphatically insisting that was the case. But um, the sorry, yes. Gerfried. Um, there's much to appreciate in Mark. So if anyone wants to read more in this area, um, I do reference some of his works in that footnote Absolutely. 51. But absolutely. And uh, man, Kahlberg is a potent writer. He definitely gets right in there and very insightful, very sharp, amazing. Um, but uh, yeah, anyways, coming back to this thing though, so, you know, for whether it be Westminster classic covenant theology or whatever we want to call it, uh, for those, you know, at this point, what happens in that system? Right. I think the, 
the best attempt I've seen by non-Kleinians um, to make sense of what's going on in the Mosaic Covenant is they see the law that God gives on Sinai as um, what we would call the third use of the law. Right. And I know that I dropped that phrase at the conference in uh, Wellington and uh, got lots of questions afterwards. So I don't know if I should take a moment and just explain that, or do you think your listening audience? Is uh, yeah, familiar? no, I think, but if I think we could, we've we've got that down. Third use of the okay. law is in normative kind of uh, you know, you, hey, you, you've been given grace, now respond. This is how God wants you to respond. This is the, the right. life He's called you to. Right? That's what we're talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Totally. So they would see the law at Sinai as this is your Christian duty. Right, totally. So, and and you know, it's worth mentioning because almost I think of uh, most covenant theology, te- not textbooks, but books, just you know, offering the basics of Reformed covenant theology, go in that direction. That we just typically think of of this next moment as just the giving of the law uh, as a third use. Um, but now, with that in mind, let's work through why you think there's something more going on, and uh, what those guys have to reckon with. Um, mm. Uh, as you go through it, I think that just kind of brings it alive because you see, I, I think the points that you make next are really, really good. And I don't think you can, I, I just certainly on some of these, I just honestly don't see how you could come back on them, you know, like because it almost what I'm getting for here is that it, it almost sounds, it sounds very plausible, right? You, you've been delivered from bondage. We've just relayed that to the cross. This is in many ways like the Christian life. We're saved, we're delivered from our Egyptian bondage. Uh, and then God does call us to live and pursue holiness and gives us, you know, and we, you know, I, I don't have a problem with uh, third use of the law in, in, in a principled sense. So we're pressing on, we're trying to obey God out of evangelical obedience, essentially. And so oh, right. yeah, it makes sense that that would be happening in the Old Testament. And so you could quite easily just go along with that. And things you might miss are the following points. So maybe what we could do is just, um, just for this episode, just try and hit these following points in this next section. And then sort of draw it to a close, and then we can kind of hit the next uh, part of the chapter as part two. Um, so, all right. First thing, Israel swore the covenant oath. This is proof, this is evidence that the Mosaic covenant was not merely just a, uh, the giving of the law to the Christian as a third use of the law. This is something more. This is a republishing of the covenant of works. Uh, right. Yes. Israel swore the covenant oath. What do you mean by that? Well... Uh, in chapter one, I, I pointed out that uh, whoever swears the oath is the indicator of what kind of a covenant it is. And mm-hmm. so if God swears the oath, it's a covenant of grace because it just it simply cannot be broken. Yes. But if um, a human being swears the oath, then it's a covenant of works because it depends on whether that human being obeys or disobeys. Right. And all we have to do there is just contrast what we've already spoken about in the Abrahamic covenant and, you know, these very... You know, everyone knows these stories where the people are like, let the blood be upon our heads. No problem. All good. You know, tie us up, you know, uh, give it to us. (laughs) They just sort of very, and typically that gets preached. And I've heard a whole bunch of sermons goes, guys, don't be so confident that you can keep God's commandments, you know, but it's more than that. It's, 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 it's sort of making a point saying you've just entered into the whole problem again, uh, without realizing that, um, you know, you, you, you can't do it. You, you, uh, it's going to be this massive object lesson in history to, to drive home the truth of the fall, essentially, right? Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay, second point. 
the outcome of the covenant depended upon Israel's obedience. Uh, what do you mean by that? Well, so there are two chapters that I think are especially helpful in understanding what I mean here, and that's Leviticus chapter 26 mm -hmm. and Deuteronomy chapter 28. And each of those chapters starts out with, here are the blessings that I will give you if you keep the law that mm -hmm. I've given you on Mount Sinai. And then the second half of each chapter is, here are all the curses that will fall upon you if you disobey the law that I've given you. And yeah. so I've got I've got them side by side, how those work out. But, um, yeah, helpful. Yeah. I mean, just, just that fact alone mm. should make it sound very different from the gospel that we hear preached in churches. Mm. But then you look at some of the curses that God is going to give them for their disobedience. Um, in Leviticus 26, one of those is that they would have to eat their children. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry, but that is not grace. <laughs> Yeah. Now, on that point, and just and this is kind of where I wanted to go with uh, just having that pit stop before we started these um, these points. I mean, what would the opposing view say? They'd have to deal with that, right? They would have to. Uh, and so, even if we just reverse a little bit to the first point you made, Israel swore the covenant oath. Uh, they, mm -hmm. they have to find a way to incorporate that kind of activity into a covenant of grace, don't they? Yes. And, I don't know how they would do that, but well, it ends up with a very conditional legalistic kind of approach uh it, you know it's interesting uh, when when we get to the second point i've heard this reconciled to the covenant of grace idea by way of you know hebrew 6 and the warnings and apostasy and that sort of thing that um you know hey that you're in the covenant of grace fine but you know you've got to you've got to you know pledge your commitment you've got to keep working this thing out you've you know you are involved uh they they try and sort of salvage that by saying um you know everything that you do is given by grace alone but it still ends up being you know something that's very dependent upon your works and then if you don't do these works you know these curses are kind of those warnings of apostasy and that sort of thing that you find in the new testament uh i, I don't know if you've heard anything other than that I have, but I don't know how then you're supposed to find any joy in the gospel at all. Exactly. I mean, it essentially functionally reverses everything you've just said that's good news. You know, right. you end up just as terribly, uh, you end up back in the covenant of works, whether you like it or not, bottom line. Exactly. Um, yeah. And so, yeah, I think, I mean, you know, just wanting to, to bring this out to, to point out to people so they can go and work through this stuff, you know, that there are, there are uh, I suppose, um, you know, different covenant theologies. Um, even within the Reformed tradition. Um, but yeah, I mean, like, you know, there's one biblical text, and at the end of the day, you've got to, you've got to reconcile this kind of information to what's going on. And there's something decidedly not of the same ilk as we see um, uh, in, in, in the gracious covenant with Abraham, and yet something decidedly of the same ilk of the covenant of works, as you said earlier. Uh, this is like Genesis 1, or Genesis 2 at least, you know? Yes, very um, much. Yeah, this is, hey, do this and live. Don't do this and die. Um, so that makes sense. All right, and then you got Hosea 6, verse 7. Um, uh, they, like Adam, have uh, violated my covenant. What's going on there? We've, have we mentioned this one before somewhere in the book? I remember something like that. It came up briefly, and I, I wish that I had rehearsed some of the things that I said earlier. Um, but if there is a silver bullet for saying that the Mosaic covenant was a covenant of works, yeah. here it is. It's okay. Hosea 6, 7. 
Right. And they, like Adam, right. have violated my covenant. Right. There they have acted unfaithfully toward me. Sorry, go ahead. No, that's that's good. So and that and the reason that's so forceful again is because Adam was in a covenant of works. So right. you know, at the end of the day, if that if their violation of that covenant was like the violation of Adam, uh, then you know that's a, that is a silver bullet and slam dunk. I mean, I was just gonna. I was thinking probably the only way you could get out of something like that is by saying that Adam himself was, you know, that the whole that mono covenantal thing where, where they're all under grace, you know, <laughs> from the beginning, and then, uh, you know, probably they would try and get away from from the implication of this verse. Yes, um, some Hebrew scholars will say, well, the the Hebrew word Adam there it should be rendered man and yeah. they like people have violated my covenant. And I think it's earlier in the book that I say that's unhelpful. I mean, yeah. that's, that's like saying my dog barks like a dog. Yeah. Well, what else is it going to do? Yes. People are going to violate the covenant because they're sinful. Yeah. I always thought that that kind of makes the same point though. You know, everyone, if everyone violates the covenant, if Israel, like everyone, you know, in Adam, essentially violates the covenant, then I don't know. If, I mean, how else would they be doing that unless they were in some sort of Adamic covenant of works that didn't work? You know, um, True. It, it feels like it's kind of it's a bit of a slower way to make the same point, you know. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, totally. At the end of the day, you know, it's one of those probably it probably isn't um, the text that you would lean on just on its own, but just together with everything else, you're like, well, it really makes sense that Hosea said that. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, just thinking also, um, yeah, I got a little note here. Sorry, let me just jump ahead. You know, one, one thing that's been highlighted to me recently um, is that you have Romans 5 verse 14, um, yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. Uh, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a mm-hmm. type of the one to come. I mean, there's something there that changes when Moses comes, right? That's that's the whole thing. And they're all of a sudden brought under a kind of sin, a transgression that was similar to Adam. And there's something yes. very powerful about that. It's essentially saying the same thing that Isaiah says, you know? Uh, this, you know, they have transgressed at that point, not just sinned. You're absolutely right. And I don't remember if I include that uh, passage in this chapter, but um, your listeners could read Klein's uh, Gospel Until the Law, where yeah. he really unpacks that. Totally. Um, yeah. But what we would expect Paul to say there is that death reigned from Adam to Christ. Right. right? Exactly. And that Christ defeated death and so on and so forth. But the reason he stops at Moses is because you have a recapitulation, a re, yeah. um, rehashing of that covenantal situation with Adam, mm. a covenant of works. Mm, totally. Brilliant. All right. And then um, your fourth point, in order for the last Adam to, oh, did I miss three? No, we got three. All right. Nope. In order for the last Adam to merit our salvation, he had to fulfill the same kind of covenant that the first Adam, uh, the first man Adam broke. I lo- I think this this is this is my favorite point. <laughs> I think <laughs> I don't know that. I mean, this is just so forceful for me. This was my just Copernican revolution on this stuff. Oh, okay. uh, all right. So, what do you mean there? Tell us about that one. So, if um, if let's just say that uh, 
Israel was just another group of people living in this Abrahamic covenant and that it was all the covenant of grace all along, it would be, it wouldn't make much sense for Jesus to show up on the scene of history in mm. this covenant of grace mm. and then obey some law, you know, on our behalf so that God can count Jesus's obedience as our own. Mm. It just, um, it's contextless. It's disconnected mm. from anything. But here in the Mosaic covenant where God has given them a covenant of works at Mount Sinai, do this and live, don't do this and die. Mm. Then Jesus shows up on the scene of history in the context of that covenant. Mm. And it makes complete sense. There's a whole law code that God has given his people and that's what Jesus obeys. And so, oh, okay. I get that um, the Messiah has come and has obeyed God's law on my behalf. Yeah, totally. Does that make sense? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, just even the <laughs> thought of, you know, even just the thought of, um, well, I suppose the most you could ever get from Jesus' obedience to the law is a kind of role model, you know, as to, here we go, here's how you really use the third use of the law, right? I mean, that would right, be the best. Right. And uh, yeah, wow talk about missing it you know what i mean it just um <laughs> it just seems i mean sh yeah fine that's a great point you know at, at some level but he's not under grace number one you know? and it's just he's not responding to grace in that way so it's just the whole point falls flat at, at, at some significant level and then yeah as you say it's just um man it, the whole thing it feels contextless but it, it just has this amazing for me uh, just this unifying effect. And all of a sudden you realize the system of the Bible and mm -hmm. how intentional the whole thing and, and why Jesus was born when he was born. You know, uh, the fullness of time takes on a, a whole new meaning because the object lesson had been laid, so to speak. Now we have the information to make sense of, of what Jesus' ministry was all about um, through a lifetime yes. of Israel's failure. And yeah, so the whole thing is just, I think, just so much more powerful. Um, but then fifth point, the Apostle Paul says quite plainly <laughs> that the law is not based on faith or grace, but on works and justice. What do you mean there? So I'm thinking especially of Galatians 3.12, where Paul says, uh, but the law is not based on uh, faith. Um, yeah. And then, you know, we've got other places like Romans 10.5, um, where... Uh, Paul says, for Moses writes that the person who does the righteousness of the law shall live by those works. Yeah. And that's the principle that he's also appealing to in Galatians 3.12, do this and live. Yeah. Um, and um, that's just, that's not the principle that uh, we are saved according to. And I think I get into a discussion of um, how there are, two different principles that we encounter in the Old Testament. So we have that Leviticus 18.5, do this and live. Mm -hmm. But then later, during the period of the prophets, we have Habakkuk in chapter 2, verse 4, talking about how the righteous yeah, shall live by right. faith. Yeah. And yeah. when you understand the contexts in which each author is saying that, um, mm. it, it really drives Paul's point home. Totally. Um, even more clearly. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, I, all of a sudden, you know, seeing things aren't contradicting, you know, the the other mm -hmm. statement. And, you know, it's all just a part of this thing uh, that's moving forward and teaching us what we need. But um, how would, again, like how would the other version of covenant theology try and uh, 
What have they done to try and get through this one? That's a good question. Um, and I'm not completely sure. I, I, I Obviously, they're not going to have any trouble with Habakkuk 2.4, but I'm not right. quite sure what they do with Leviticus 18.5. Yeah, interesting. I, I could only see that people would get through that by just making a real, well, I suppose as a client says, a covenantal hash out of the whole thing. You know, just <laughs> just truly um, mixing law and grace, you know, at the end of the day and just really coming. Right. It's I have to constantly pull myself back on this one because I realize like there are checks and balances in the other covenantal system in that they are you know they're constantly emphasizing we're justified by faith not by works they're trying to put that in the category of a kind of evangelical obedience and works of the law and that sort of thing but it's just that the overall you know functional tenor of the whole thing as we said earlier ends up being just a just a, yeah, it, yeah, I suppose where, what really suffers is your own assurance at the end of the day. Um, you, while you're, you're, you're told that you're under a covenant of grace, it really feels you know, like a covenant of works at every turn. Um, and you know, that's going to affect the, the Christian life, assurance, joy in Christ, desire to obey, all sorts of things. Uh, even without being able to piece together why you feel that way or, you know, it's just, it's, it's a dangerous thing. So it's got all the, it's almost like got all the reformation ticks, you know, it's got the ticks in the, all the right boxes, but it's just something yes. wrong with it fundamentally. And, and it's just functionally undone everything. <laughs> and so, yeah, it's a scary thing. And so hopefully anyone who's listening, uh, in on this and, uh, working through Chris's book, you know, there, there's some really lucid points for you to work through and, um, go and check those scriptures out. And, um, yeah, I mean, do your, do your work on this thing. Try and see, uh, you know, who you think better represents what the scriptures are saying at that point. And, you know, I don't know. Can you think of a, um, yeah, Palmer Robinson is the only one that's coming to mind now. I'm having a bit of a Sunday afternoon moment. Is there any other, <laughs> um, like, really short covenantal book that just takes a more normal kind of classical, non-Kleinian approach? Classical is oh, not the right word. We need um, to think of a better word. What are we calling that? Maybe like the majority report. Majority report. Position. That yeah. still sounds too powerful. <laughs> it's, it need, we need like a, need a, a way to talk about it. It's ridiculous that we don't have a, a better slogan for those guys. Um, True. Yeah. I want to call them classical reform, but they are probably classical reformed, which is kind of what we were saying <laughs> earlier, right? They yeah, are. Right. Yeah. Well, should we just call them reformed? <laughs> Kleinian and reformed. That would make Scott Clark happy. Uh, Scott- Clark ha- happy, you know? I think so. Yes. Man. So we'll we'll say the the um, the truly reformed. Why don't we just go with truly reformed? <laughs> <laughs> That's what Frank calls them. No, I'm joking. Uh, all right, <laughs> good. Um, yeah, I forgot what I was talking about. Yeah, I'm not quite sure where we went from there. <laughs> well, that's a good place to drop it, right? <laughs> I think let's leave it right there, and um, we'll pick it up. With the next question, which is uh, just important, what about grace during the time of the Mosaic Covenant? Because this is the number one objection that comes. Um, but don't you, I mean, don't you see? How can you say that it was all by, you know, it was all like a covenant of works during that time? There's so much grace going on there. There's the Levitical priesthood. There's the tabernacle. There's everything else. So we need to kind of look at that. Uh, but just to keep these things manageable, let's drop. Uh, let's uh, call this. Bring this to a close. And uh, we'll pick it up in the next Monday. Um, Sound good? Sounds good to me. All right. Thanks, Chris. Appreciate it. Thanks again, Mike.